Hey, we're so happy you found us online. The message you're about to hear was recorded live at Grace Family Church. We're a community following the call to love God, love people, and make a difference. We meet at four locations around Durban and at graceonline.tv. Go ahead and share this message, or you can download it and listen to it in your car or at home later today. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening from, thank you for connecting with us. And may you be encouraged by the message coming up next. Okay, you rolling? Okay, we're gonna scare Jason with this spider. Come on, we're gonna get him back. Watch it! Guys, this is a film set, you got it. Tons of things happen in our lives every day. And in a 24 hour period, we ask ourselves so many different questions. Like, what should I eat? What should I wear? Or who should I hang out with? Sometimes we ask bigger questions, like, what do I wanna be when I grow up? Who will I marry? Or where will I live? But every once in a while, we ask ourselves those even bigger questions. Questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? And is there more to life than this? The reality is, there aren't a lot of places we can go to explore life's biggest questions. So on Alpha, we want to create a space where we can talk about those kind of questions in a way that's open and honest. So that is the Youth Alpha starting alongside the Youth, uh, the, alongside the Alpha film series. So don't miss Alpha if you've never done it before. Literally millions of people's lives have been changed uh, through the Alpha course. But why don't you just turn to someone and say hello, say how's it, say have, have you had a good weekend. There we go. Give them a handshake, a high five, whatever you want to do. And uh, we're, I'm excited to share with you this evening. But before I get into kind of the, the, the message, um, I want to start by sharing... A, a little bit of a sad story in a sense that, that this week or about a week and a half ago, I had the opportunity, the privilege, and the sadness to attend uh, little Andiswe's funeral. And uh, Andiswe was one of the, the children, the babies at the, at the baby home that, that Skip and Sheila Collins head up and have been doing for a number of years. And, and, I, and I also just want to take a time just to, to honor uh, Skip and Sheila. I know Skip, you're here, and Sheila was on the worship team. Uh, just the incredible... Uh, job that you guys have done, just loving on so many kids and so many babies over the years. And I know what an incredibly difficult time this has been as you've wrestled with and, and, and mourned over the loss of little Andis where she died uh, just over a year old. And, uh, and we, it really was just kind of a, a heart-wrenching moment as we gathered for this funeral. And Skip was brave enough to get up and to share. And, uh, and he shared this verse from Isaiah chapter 35 that I'd read before, but never in the message version, and he shared it, and it just, it really kind of struck a chord with me, and I think with many others, and Wayne shared it last week as part of a sermon at Cornubia, and I think he sent it out as part of the, um, the weekly newsletter, if you don't get that, um, and, but I want to read to you, I want to start by reading to you these words from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, lit, literally written thousands of years ago, that I believe can breathe courage into you this evening. It says this, energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees. Tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. And I, and I just love this verse and the, the heart behind this verse, especially I think as we head into a new year, because there's something about a new year that kind of instills in us a sense of hope a sense of expectation, a sense of belief and faith, perhaps that this year can be better than the last. 
And so I'm excited about what 2020 holds for us as a church, for me individually, and for you. But, but I also understand that a new year, as I said last week, can bring with it also a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety, of uncertainty, or maybe of being kind of overwhelmed or intimidated. Sometimes I think we come into the new year with less Less energy, less hope, less time, less money than we feel like we need for what lies ahead. And that's why I think we need to heed Isaiah's words when he says, energize limp hands, strengthen rubbery knees. And maybe you feel like you've walked into this, this service this evening or you're watching online and you feel like you've got rubbery knees. And this is, in essence, what we try to do every Sunday as we gather uh, uh, online, as we gather across the locations. As a faith community, we seek to strengthen and energize one another and ourselves in the Lord. To tell fearful souls, ours and others, to take courage, to take heart. To, we, we say, we, or we remind ourselves through the songs that we sing that God is here. God is at work right here, and He is able to put the right things wrong, to redress all wrongs. Last week, we started the series called Dream Small, and it comes from Zechariah chapter 4. And Zechariah chapter 4 is an important verse for us because this is the verse that birthed the church. It's the verse that gave name to this church, Grace Family Church, 28 years ago. And at the end of that verse, that scripture, Zechariah says this, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Do not despise small beginnings. And, and I don't often say this, but if you missed last week, I really encourage you to kind of go online, go onto our YouTube channel, or get the podcast or download it or whatever. Um, it's on our app, on our website, and, and, and because it does kind of build on each week in the series. But the main idea, just to kind of recap, is that so often we think that in order to get big results, then we've got to make big changes. We've got to make these radical changes. When the reality is what I've discovered, when the truth is that it's often the small things that no one sees that result in the big things everyone wants. That was kind of the key takeaway from last week. And we said, start small. Do the next right thing. And when you've done that, when you've done the next right thing, then look around. See what the next right thing is and do that. And if we continue to do that, to continue to do the next right thing, take the next step, then we begin to walk in the will of God for our lives. And we begin to see the results, the big results that we so often long for. Start small. Do the next right thing. Jesus said it like this. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in larger ones. Mother Teresa put it like this. Be faithful in small things because it is in them that your strength lies. Mother Teresa also said this. She said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And that's really our heart for this series and for you, for us as a church, that we would dream small, start small. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Now, this whole idea of dream small, the kind of title, it was really inspired by a Global Leadership Summit speaker um, at the last GLS. If you were part of that, you would have heard a woman by the name of Liz Bohannon, and uh, she wrote a book uh, called Beginner's Pluck. And I'm actually reading it at the moment. It's a fantastic book, and, and she defines pluck, or pluck is defined as spirited and determined courage. And the book is really about building, having the courage to build a life of purpose and meaning and significance. 
And so today, as we kind of take the next step in what it means to dream small, I'm going to steal unashamedly some ideas from Liz's book and from her talk. And then I want to look at an interesting character in the Bible, a guy by the name of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, whom words we read just earlier on as we opened the words that Skip read at Andiswe's funeral. And what's so interesting about Isaiah, kind of research around Isaiah, is that he's probably one of the most fascinating men in the Hebrew Bible and in the Old Testament. And yet he's also one of the most mysterious. His writings are cited more than any other Hebrew text in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes Isaiah more than any other of the prophets. And he continues to be an, an, a huge influential voice in, in, amongst Christianity even today. He's represented more numerously amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls than all the other prophetic texts combined. And so Isaiah has had a huge impact on the world. And Isaiah, he was very little known about it, but he was, he was kind of very bold. I mean, he was constantly scolding kings and leaders at risk to his life most of the time. Uh, he was what I would call an equal opportunity nag. I mean, he was constantly on about equal opportunity for rich and for poor, for men and for women. And this was, of course, thousands of years ago. It was scandalous at the time. Certainly today, he would be called a liberal or a feminist. And it seems that at some point in his life, perhaps before he had an encounter with God's grace, he also kind of described himself as living a colorful life. He protests that he's a man of unclean lips. And yet, despite his massive impact on society and on the world, very little is known of this man, of this prophet. We know that he was the son of Amos. We know some of his children's names. Um, some think that he grew up with some, uh, he, like he was an aristocrat, he had some privilege. Others believe that he lived with the poor. But whatever his circumstances, at some point, uh, certainly early on in his life, we know that he came face to face with poverty. And at the same time, he also understood and knew the debauchery of the rich, the kind of excess of the rich. And so he was able to kind of bridge the classes. But that's pretty much all we know about Isaiah. And I think part of the reason why we don't know much about him or hear much about him, about his personal life, is because actually I think he was actually pretty average. There was nothing really kind of extraordinary about, his, about him. You know, he wasn't born uh, in some special place at a special time. He was not more educated than anyone else, or he wasn't ex exceptionally rich or richer than, than most. There's nothing really that set him apart. And that's actually kind of my first point. If we're to dream small, if we're to take the necessary small steps to the big future that we so desire, that God has planned for us, then the first thing we have to learn to do is to own our average. Own our average. Here's the truth. You, like me, are most likely pretty average. <laughs> I know, I know, I have a great gift for inspiring words, right? I mean, can you imagine that on your next Instagram post, you know, in beautiful hand-lettered text, you know, with a sunset on the background? You are average. <laughs> but it's true. The majority of people hearing this message and delivering it are most likely in the center of that almighty bell curve because that's how average works. <laughs> and if that makes you feel bad or sad, it's because we've been conditioned to think that being inherently average is depressing and demoralizing when in fact owning your average is actually a remarkably freeing and kind of powerful acknowledgement because being born, listen to this, this is so important, being born inherently gifted or above average is not a prerequisite for living an extraordinary life. 
And let me be very clear, owning your average is not a call to complacency. Don't, don't you dare own your average so that you can stay there or so that you can be content with an average life devoid of purpose and passion and connection and meaning. Own your average is about freeing ourselves up from all the energy that we spend trying to figure whether we measure up trying to compare to those around us. And instead channeling that energy into becoming an interested, curious A dreamer-doer, as Liz would say, who believes that extraordinary stories and lives can be built by the average us. You see, this is universally and historically true. I mean, just think about the Bible and the the characters in the Bible. I mean, it seems like God just consistently used average people. I mean, read the stories. Jacob was a homeless drifter. Moses, a murderer with a stammer. Ehud, a disabled loner. Yale, a foreigner. David, an impulsive teen. And yet God used them. You see, we're neither called to vie for the spotlight, neither to shrink into the chorus line. We're simply called to figure out, to own our average, to figure out how God created us to be uniquely and figure out what we have to offer, the gifts we have to give, the words we have to speak, the songs we have to sing, the art we have to make, and then go all in with whatever time and talent and treasure that God has given to us to make a difference in this world. As the famous show, showbiz line goes, there are no small parts, only small actors. You see, because even though we're all pretty average, each of us still has a sacred part to play. And what the world doesn't need are people who are just kind of desperately trying to convince others and themselves, I believe, that they are above average. They're some sort of superior, you know, a special unicorn, just destined you know, and if people would just discover their greatness, you know, because they think that'll earn them spotlight or worth or purpose. At the same time, what the world doesn't need is more people just to shrink back because they erroneously believe that they're below average and they're afraid what they might think or what they might say if they were indeed to fact spread their wings a little bit. You see, your inherent gifts and talents and smarts most likely do not make you above average, but neither do your fears and your deepest insecurities, and your shortcomings, because those are all pretty average too. I mean, every single one of us, we all struggle with self-doubt. I, I don't think I've ever met a non-sociopathic human who doesn't struggle with, you know, imposter syndrome. Am I good enough? Where, you, know, you know, do I have what it takes? I mean, I, I studied physio. I, was, I worked as a physiotherapist before I, I, I went into ministry. And I'll tell you, I mean, the medical people here, you'll know. Doctors and that, in, in med school and all that, they tell you, the first thing they tell you, fake it till you make it, brew. I mean, just like the oak comes in, oh, what is that? Oh, yeah, no, sure, sure, sure. And then you run off to your office. What the heck was that? You know. <laughs> and these are the same surgeons cutting you open, I promise you. These oaks are also faking it to them. Anyway. <laughs> but here's the deal. Something happens when we own our average. We stop only saying yes to the things that we think we'll just immediately excel in. We, st- we start to realize that no one is thinking about us quite as much as we are. <laughs> and when we decide to own our average, we start to believe or remember that success requires lots and lots of work and isn't just an inevitable result of being born awesome. 
And we realize that our insecurities, our failures are, are, not, just a tell, are not a telltale sign that we're below average. They're just re- requisites on the road to building an, a, a life of purpose and passion. There was a brilliant study done by a, um, a psychologist uh, called Claudia Mueller and, and where she, she tests hundreds of fifth graders and they have these, the, these fifth graders and they do these puzzles and tests with them and they divided them into two groups. And the first group of fifth graders, when they'd completed the puzzles, they said to them, wow, what a great score. You must be really smart. You must be gifted. You are special. And then to the second group, instead of kind of praising their inherent uh, uh, smarts, rather they praised progress and growth and work ethic. They said, wow, what a great score. You must have worked really hard at solving those problems where others would have gotten frustrated and given up. I bet you'll do even better next time. And the crazy thing, the results were absolutely fascinating. Those in group one praised for their inherent talent and intelligence actually shied away from choosing a more challenging assignment in the future because the risk of failure was too great. Whilst those in group two praised for their progress, hard work, grit, and curiosity actually wanted a more challenging assignment. Failure didn't scare them at all. And in fact, when, when given more puzzles and more tests, those in group one actually did worse, and those in group two actually outperformed those in group one. And the implications of this are, are really quite astonishing. Quite, they, they're widespread. What I desperately want you to understand is that being extraordinary or talented or gifted is not a prerequisite to living an extraordinary life. Building a life of passion and purpose has so much less to do with your inherent intelligence or gifts or skills or talents and more about your posture and your mindset and your attitude and your curiosity quotient. And none of those things require us to be above average. Every single one of us can, can, can cultivate a sense of curiosity, can change our attitudes. And I believe when we do that, I believe that every single one of us, we were made right to be where we are right here, right now. And we have something, although we average, we have something extraordinary and, and mind-bogglingly awesome about us that God has wired into how we've been made. That every single one of us carry the mark of the divine, like a, like a DNA strand. We carry the image of God. And we will leave an imprint on the world in a way that no one else on planet earth ever can. But you cannot do it when you're living with fear. And you cannot do it when you're running someone else's race or comparing yourself to someone else. And you cannot do it accidentally. If we want to build a life of purpose, it's going to have to be on purpose. Isaiah may have been pretty average, but he was not afraid. And God used him to speak into the nation of Israel. And God used him to change the world. Do not despise these small beginnings. Proudly own your average in 2020. Amen? Now, the second big idea of what it means to dream small. i got three big ideas on what it means to, to take the next small step that will lead to a big future. The first one is own your average. The second one, stop trying to find your passion. (laughs) <laughs> I love this. This is, again, this is straight out of uh, Lil's, uh, Liz's talk in the Global Leadership Summit. And I love it because our world is just full of this idea of follow your passion. Just follow your passion. Do what you love. You know, if you can dream it, you can be it and all this stuff. Do what makes you happy. And I think we've confused passion 
for preference and for feelings. And while I understand what they're trying to say, I think we're seriously misleading an entire generation. I mean, I meet some young people and they say, well, I'm not going to do that job because I'm just not passionate about it. And I'm saying, bro, you're 19. <laughs> this is an awesome opportunity. Get stuck in. But there's a generation that kind of think that, that, you know, that they can make a living by, you know, posting pictures of their bum on Instagram. <laughs> Don't laugh because you might be following them. <laughs> And yes, there are some people who make a living by doing that on Instagram, but I can promise you it is a very small, small, small bum percentage, I mean. It's a very, it's very small. <laughs> I mean, have you ever met someone who just said, you know, well, I just, I just always knew I wanted to be a pilot. I just always knew I wanted to be a doctor. Since the time I was two years old, I just knew. And that's just my thing. And and I think that's great. If that's you, I think there's some people who just know that from the start, and that's amazing. But for many people I meet, for most people I know, they don't know what their thing is. And they're wrestling with that. And sometimes it can kind of lead to a sense of insecurity or shame that comes from, you know, oh, well, I, I like a bunch of stuff, but I don't really know if it's my thing. And then I thought, well, where do we, exactly do we get this idea of your thing? And when you look back and kind of where it emerged, it actually emerged around the same time as this notion of a soulmate, and that's actually a very new idea in terms of, you know, history. And perhaps without articulating it, we kind of secretly believe that our purpose and our passion is this sort of singular soulmate that's waiting out there for us to discover it. That there's this one path that will lead to an awe-inducing, fix all of our problems, forever embrace. Now, looking back on my own journey, I think there have been times I did believe that. But in retrospect, I now see that as often such an unproductive and anxiety-producing lie. To believe that our passion and our purpose exists sort of fully formed out there, and all we have to do is find it. And it puts an awful lot of pressure on us to, to, to make the, the right step, to get the right degree, to open the right door so that the stars can align, so that in a cinematically glorious kind of moment, we can just meet our passion under the Tuscan sky. I'm here to tell you, you will never find your purpose and your passion. Your PR, welcome. <laughs> Told you I'm inspiring today. <laughs> your passion and purpose is not out there buried like treasure or hidden behind a tree. It's not waiting for you to open the right door or peep around the right rock like some cosmic and cruel hide-and-seek game. Passion and purpose are not objects of a desire to be hidden, you know, waiting to be discovered. They are a canvas that is waiting to have the first splat of paint poured on it. It's a blank screen on your computer, a blank page on your computer screen that's waiting to have that 100,000 words of a story written across it. The problem with the 100,000 words is that you've got to have 10,000 words before you can have 100,000 words. And before you can have 10,000 words, you've got to have one word. I'm busy writing a book at the moment, and I'm super excited about it, but it's hard because I have this big dream, but every time I look at this blank page, it's kind of overwhelming. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Start small. This is what Liz Bohannon says. She says, passion is not a pre-existing condition. A life of purpose and passion can't be found. You do not find passion and purpose. You build it. You build it. Turn to someone and say, build it. Build it. Build it. 
I was going to say, turn to someone and say, and, and I was going to say, tell the person next to you, you're average, but that didn't work so well. So <laughs> I know you've been wanting to say that, but anyway, build it. You start construction by being brave and curious and daring. You start construction when you follow rabbit trails and step forward in the general direction of north, when you ask tough questions of yourself and of the world, and when you're willing and brave enough to actually listen to the answer and to receive the feedback and to pivot, to turn when necessary. That's what the word repent means. We think repent is some scary religious word, but repent simply means to turn around. When we know we've gone off course, when we've taken a wrong turn, we do not find passion and purpose. We build it in and out of season. We build it. Even when the glitter and the adrenaline wear off and everyone else moves on to the next shiny thing. In fact, if you can't do it with passion in the small place, why in the world would God promote you to a bigger one? Passion is proved through perseverance. And if we ever do, in fact, find our passion, it's usually when we move past our feelings. Because feelings are up and down. They're all over the place. We've told, we've told people, if you don't feel it, you don't have to do it. But if you've got real passion, you'll do it when you're up and you'll do it when you're down. You'll do it when they hate you and you'll do it when they love you. There's, there's no secret. There's no silver bullet. You just have to be brave enough to listen to the whisper that says, keep going. Remember last week we spoke about listening to the whispers of God, the whispers of His Spirit. You do not find passion and purpose, you build it. And if you're here this evening, or maybe you're watching online, and you feel like, you know what, I feel like I've lost passion, Tom. I feel like I knew what my thing was. I had it, and now it's gone. There's a sense that you've lost it. I, I just want to say this. If you, if you want passion in your life, practice. Practice it. That's how we build it. I don't feel grateful, grateful anymore. Be grateful. Choose to be grateful in whatever circumstances. Well, I don't feel love anymore. Be loving. Choose to love. You don't find a perfect marriage. You build one over years. Own your average. Stop trying to find your passion. Start building it. And then finally, plant flowers. Plant flowers. Now, this kind of needs to be unpacked a little bit. And, and I really felt God kind of stir this point up for me this week. And it came out of a, an image that I saw a little while ago that I really kind of wanted to share with you. I, I love this image. It's a cartoon that I saw online. It says this. Why so optimistic about 2020? What do you think it will bring? Everything just seems so messed up, right? Well, I think it will bring flowers. Yes, how come? Because I'm planting flowers. I mean, it's so simple, right? And yet it's so, it's so true. If we want to experience flowers in 2020, well, we better make sure we're planting flowers. And in fact, that's not even entirely true because you don't plant flowers, you plant seeds. And the thing about seeds is seeds are small. Seeds are tiny. Seeds are insignificant. Seeds go into the ground. Seeds are not glamorous. They're not flowers yet. But when we plant them and we nurture them and we water them, what do we get? We get flowers. We get a harvest. And this is the problem, I think, with so many of us, is we have these big dreams, these big aspirations, these big desires, but we don't want to plant the seeds. We don't want to get down in the dirt and actually do the dirty work of sowing. 
And I think we live in a world where we want flowers without the sowing, without the planting. We want the beauty without the struggle. We live in a world that wants to buy it before we can afford it. We live in a world that wants to sleep with it before you put a ring on it. I said that this morning and someone at the back went, amen. <laughs> and I said, Brew, you're not getting any. Anyway, <laughs> he didn't say anything the rest of that. But, but Jesus said, that's not how my kingdom works. He says, first we must sow and then we will reap. Why in the world would you go out to a field expecting flowers when you didn't plant any seeds? Why in the world would you expect a fruitful marriage when you haven't sown seeds of love and of intimacy and of trust? Why in the world would you expect a full bank account when you haven't sown seeds of conscientious living and of good stewardship? And this is what the prophet Isaiah was always on about. He was trying to get the people of Israel, the kings, the religious leaders to see that in God's kingdom there is a principle. It's a, the, 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 it's a law, the law of sowing and reaping. And there's an order to it. First you sow, then you reap, not the other way around. And the thing about seeds, like I said, is a seed is small. If you want to see big results, you have to start small because it's the small things that no one sees. You don't see the seed in the ground, it's under the ground. It's the small things that no one sees that result in the big things or the beautiful things that, that everyone wants. We all want flowers, I presume. I mean, it's a metaphor, but we all want our lives, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We all want our relationships to flourish and to bloom in every way. But the question is, what seeds are you sowing? What seeds are you sowing? Are you just waiting for springtime and hoping that something is going to miraculously sprout from the ground? Dream small, plant small. I was uh, inspired by Liz's story, and if you've read her book or watched the talk, it's just an incredible story. I don't have time to go into the full detail, but Liz had a big dream. She had a big dream to impact millions of women's lives, and she particularly was, was interested in, in uplifting women out of poverty, and, and she had a big dream. She said her dream was a vision of a, for a corporate philanthropy initiative that involved millions of dollars and was going to improve the lives of millions of women across the globe. A big dream. Lots of dollars. Many lives. But she admits that for years, that big dream actually paralyzed her. It numbed her because she didn't know where to start as she carried on her day-to-day -day existence. But then, one day, say one day. one day. Sometimes that's all it takes for God to kind of break through just one day. And maybe today is the day for some dreams in this room. Who knows? One day, she was kind of, while doing some research, she stumbled across a video called The Girl Effect. And uh, you can go watch it online. I think Garth shared it on the, on the um, Schlanger Facebook community group. Um, and it's a kind of a three or four minute clip of, of, of this idea that if you want to make a difference, a real difference, you've got to start with a 12-year-old girl. Because if you can change a 12-year-old girl's uh, uh, education, if you can get her into school, then it means that she, she's able to educate herself. And that actually changes an entire family. And that's able to change an entire village. And then that, that village actually changes the whole community. And that community, in fact, the whole nation and then a whole world. Big dream, but it starts with a 12-year-old girl. And as she was watching this, this little clip, she was deeply moved. And she realized in that moment that she, while she had a great dream and a big dream, she never actually knew one single woman or girl living in poverty. She didn't have a personal relationship with a single person. And so she kind of 
listened to the whisper. There was this disconnect, this gap between what she said she cared about and the life she was actually building. And so she began just kind of listening to the promptings of God, the whispers of God, and begin to following those promptings, take the, do the next right thing and then the next right thing. And that led her to take a series of decisions to eventually taking a kind of a big decision to move to Uganda. To move to Uganda, when her, to give up her job and her degree and all that. And when her parents asked her, why are you moving to Uganda? She said this, to make a friend. That's it, just to make a friend. That was her kind of one goal, just to meet and to befriend one girl living in poverty. And that's exactly what she did. And the cool thing about that is she didn't need any degrees, no connections, no fancy job titles, no million-dollar budgets, no strategic plans, no people to give her permission. Of course, it also meant no excuses. See, that's the thing that happens when you begin to dream small and start small. There's lots of reasons why I can give you why I can't write a book. Not as many excuses or reasons why I can't write a page. Lots of reasons why I can't start a million dollar company. Not a whole bunch of reasons why I can't make a friend. For some of you, there's more reasons why you can't make a friend. But anyway. <laughs> and so, so dreaming small, that's what happened. And she moved to Uganda and she met a friend. And that led to more friends and more connections. And the rest, as they say, is history. This is now how Liz is described when she was introduced at the Global Leadership Summit. Liz Bohannon is a speaker, an entrepreneur, and the founder of Seiko Designs, a socially conscious fashion brand, creating educational and economic opportunities for women across the globe. Recognized by Forbes as a top public speaker and named by John Maxwell as one of the top three transformational leaders in the U.S., her company now employs thousands of women around the world, all from impoverished backgrounds. But she started small. She started by making a friend, planting a seed, planting a flower. If you want flowers in 2020, you better start planting some flowers. You may dream of an impossible relationship that has been kind of torn apart, made whole. But what if you kind of dreamt small? What if you planted a small seed that went something like this? I'm sorry. What can I do to make it right? It's my fault. You may dream of a budget that balances. Plant a seed. Draw up a budget if you haven't done so. Start kind of paying off a debt. Choose the smallest debt. Pay it off as quick as you can, or even if it's a little bit a month. Sell something. You dream of a deeper relationship with God, a faith that is alive and active in your life. Or maybe start by reading the Bible. Not 20 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day. Just five minutes a day. Start small. Commit to attending church just once a week. Make it part of your, your, your weekly rhythm to come to church on Sunday. It's one hour a week. If you're not part of a small group, if you've never been part of a group, join a group. Come on Wednesday. Get connected. Find a place to belong, to be cared for. Come on Alpha. Maybe that's a next step for you. You, want, you have questions. Just take the next right step. Come on Alpha and ask those questions. You dream of living a life of passion and purpose. Well, stop trying to find it and start getting on with the business of building it. Brick by brick, day by day. Follow an interest. Pursue a curiosity. Dream small. Like I said last week, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. And before David was ever a warrior or a king, he was a shepherd boy. Five loaves in the hands of God can feed 5,000. 
Who knows what God can do in us and through us? Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. That is my prayer for every single one of us, for us as individuals, for us as a church, that we would say, like, like Martin Luther King Jr. says, if I cannot do great things, I will do small things in a great way. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and if you just give us a few more minutes, we just want to kind of wrap this, this uh, sermon up this evening, and, and as the band come up, I, I want to read to you, I want to go all the way back. And just read, kind of close again with this verse from Isaiah that Skip read out at Andiswe's funeral that, that he, where he says this, Energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees, tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way. He'll save you. And just as we close, here's kind of the coolest part. And, and this really excited me as I was preparing to preach this message to you. And, and, and I, knew, I knew I was going to use this text from Isaiah 35 that Skip had used. And I was really excited about this idea that God had planted in my heart to tell you to plant flowers in 2020. But then I was just reading around Isaiah and I read back in verse 31. And sorry, in verse 35. And I discovered what he said just before this verse. And, and really it just, it just kind of confirmed everything that God was was, was asking me to tell you this evening. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm actually just going to read right back in Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1. And I, I let the words of this prophet, this average prophet, speak courage and life into you this evening. This is so cool how it all kind of comes together. He says, Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. I didn't know what a crocus was. I had to Google it. And here's what a crocus is. It's a flower. It's a flower. Isaiah is speaking about flowers. God told me to tell you today to plant flowers. And just in case I missed it, he brought me back to this verse to confirm it. And I want to say and declare in this place today, I see flowers in 2020 in your life and in the life of this church. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days, says Isaiah. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The desert will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. Go Sharon. I think it's Sharon. Anyway, there the Lord will display His glory, His splendor. The splendor of our God. And with this news, Isaiah says, with this news that I've given to you, take strength. Strengthen those who have tired hands. It's not just about us. It's about helping others. If you want to sign up to be a counselor, do that. To help others to strengthen tired hands, to encourage those who have weak knees. Energize the limp hands. Strengthen the rubbery knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, yes, be strong. Do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when He comes, when He comes, He will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. Let me pause for just a moment. Who is the He? You see, that's a capital H He. Who is the He that Isaiah is talking about? I'll tell you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. And Isaiah's whole life was about pointing people to Jesus, this coming Messiah who would come thousands of years after Him. He will come. Did not Jesus quote this exact verse in his first sermon ever preached? That he has come to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind. 
He's quoting Isaiah, and when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy this thirsty land. Oh God, won't you satisfy this thirsty land? Oh God, won't you satisfy this thirsty soul? Let's sing together. 